Welcome to the 33rd episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about using Elasticsearch as a time series database instead of a traditional search engine or traditional time series databases like Graphite or Prometheus. Coupling this with Apache Kafka or other pipelining tools makes for a reliable and interesting alternative to the common options that you come across. A lot of this is predicated by the release of Elasticsearch 5.2, I think was the first that had it, with a piece in the Kibana web visualization tool called TimeLion that does time series visualizations off of Elasticsearch data. And it's actually fairly slick. Um, it's rudimentary in some ways when you first start looking at it and start poking around with it, but it's quite powerful. And if it fits your use case, it comes built into Kibana. And if you are doing Kibana for log aggregation, you can embed time series stuff in with your dashboards of other log data. So it's compelling enough in that sense to at least take a passing look at it for everybody. And for people like us who are in visibility and are always looking in the time series database space, it is, it's interesting enough. So as a, a Graphite and Prometheus expert, sure, it, apply some air quotes there. Um, how long has this been available? I want to say Timeline's first release was last August-ish, maybe last summer, late summer. Um, but they've been putting a lot of work into it. And the 5.3 release of both Kibana and Elasticsearch, because they're trying to keep their version numbers in sync now, has it, it's a relatively mature product now. There's actually um, beta support for querying um, graphite data sources from Timeline, which is an interesting That's addition they've stuck in. even interesting. I know you and I have had some offline conversation about this before and if this is appealing or not for doing large metrics at scale. So one of the one of the more interesting things about Elasticsearch is that it's built on top of Lucene. And Lucene is not unlike what some people think, Lucene is not an index engine built for doing log aggregations. It is a very, very powerful search engine that was written in Java that a lot of people use for things. Solar uses it and other folks have used it in the past. And it is, I'm trying to find the right way to say this. People have put a lot of time and energy into efficiency in terms of raw computation speed, in terms of storage efficiency on disk, in terms of memory efficiency in the JVM. And especially in the 6.0 and higher releases of Lucene, they've been making some enormous strides in numeric data storage efficiency with their... Um, the point collections, the point data stuff that they're doing. So you can now do multidimensional numeric data aggregations very, very inexpensively as compared to older um, numeric aggregations or spatial aggregations in, in Lucene. I, I'll put a link into the show notes about some of the, the point stuff that they've been working on. And when talking about multidimensional numeric aggregations, one of the things that, that often comes to mind immediately is geospatial because longitude and latitude is basically just solving the solving the question of where something is in a two-dimensional array. And they've, they've got some really, really amazing uh, math that goes into that. So I've always thought of Lucene as, as very much a text-based search engine. I definitely wasn't aware of a lot of the uh, numeric uh, math that they've put into it in the last year or so. Um, they've been putting more and more of the numeric stuff into Lucene for quite a while now. 
And with the aggregation support that is now in place, especially in Elasticsearch 2.x and higher, you can do some fairly complex and heavy-duty mathematical operations on numeric data at search time. So you can have all of your response times, and then as you pull it out, um, you're looking for numeric quantiles and other pieces, you can get that data out. Um, there's also a scripting language that is being rebuilt. They had used Groovy for a long time, but Groovy has a number of... <laughs> Groovy. <laughs> Interesting security ramifications. Um, they discovered, the Elasticsearch engineers discovered at a point that even having Groovy installed, like just loaded class-wise in Elasticsearch, regardless of where it was in the JVM, was bad and was causing security issues and all kinds of other nightmares. That sounds so, worse than Python pickles. So they have written a, a scripting engine called Painless that is mostly... Really? Painless? Yeah. It's mostly Groovy compatible. It is sandboxed in the JVM with a JVM security manager, which almost nothing in the world is actually done correctly. And I talked to one of the, the developers who, write, who writes Painless, and he was saying that basically outside of the JVM, the only real workalike to Painless is Lua. But inside of the JVM, there's nothing. There's, there's no, nobody has ever written anything that tackles what Painless tries to tackle and... Their priorities are security and safety of everything before anything else, and then comes maintainability. And way down the list is stability They've of the learned interface. Some lessons. Oh, they have learned them hard and painful, um, but they have a mostly Groovy compatible engine that has absolutely no permissions. Has every function they can call is, is whitelisted properly. It can't open sockets. It can't pause threads. It can't do anything inside the JVM unless it's given explicit permission for the operations it needs to, like for when you want to read files off a of disk, which is really what Elasticsearch does, and Groovy wants to get data out of a thing, it has to ask Elasticsearch for permission. Elasticsearch has to change context and move things around. It, they, they've done a lot of work to really make it as safe as possible because they're tired of the security bugs and they don't want to dedicate an entire team to only dealing with the scripting language. But that's, a, that's an aside. Um, so you mentioned this stuff. was a lot like Lua, Lua the uh, embeddable uh, scripting functional language, correct? Yeah. And this is effectively embeddable scripting language for search. So at search time, you can have basic code running, you know, basic scripts running that you embed in your search terms. And they operate on either the raw data that's returned or the aggregate data that's returned. So you can then further modify stuff or count the number of bytes in a thing, or do other transformations and um, conditional loops and stuff on your data while things are being searched. And it's fast. Um, it's not as fast as Lucene's native query language directly, but it's still rather quick. So That's pretty cool. Yeah, it, I've definitely seen Lua plugged into a lot of different places because it's, it's relatively... A, it's relatively usable by mere mortals, and it's pretty fast in computations. So I know some uh, time series databases that literally have Lua plugins. You want it to perform different options, you just plug in some uh, Lua modules to it. Yeah, and Elasticsearch has a built-in, as I said, the built-in scripting stuff with, with Painless. So you can leverage a lot of that stuff that you would do with Lua and other places inside of Elasticsearch during query time. And it's standard across the the five X or the five three releases, I believe. Um, so that is. I think if I write a scripting language, I'm going to call it painful. <laughs> well, I, I think the the name painless came out of the the pain and suffering that the developers were going through with the constant issues they had with 
the groovy security issue, security sure. nightmares. Um, so one of the other things that Elasticsearch gives you in terms of using it as a time series database is for small to medium values of scale, you can make scaling very, very easy with Elasticsearch. So like scaling graphite is reasonably difficult. Scaling Prometheus is kind of bizarre in some of the choices that the Prometheus developers have made about there is no multi-server scale. You there just, is you, no scaling. Yeah, you, you run multiple instances of things, right? And you just federate up if you want. And I think the for folks that have listened to last week's podcast, the real pain point with Prometheus is that it's designed to ingest a whole lot more metrics, a order of magnitude more metrics than, than a, a single graphite server would. But with the amount of data that we're interested in pushing from uh, current applications and the math that we want to do on that data makes one Prometheus server, even on beefy hardware, look awfully, awfully small. Yeah, I don't know, honestly, how far you can scale Elasticsearch as a time series database. I've not looked into those numbers personally. Um, it's on my list of things to do at this point now because this is... The, the tool set is now mature enough and it's interesting enough to, that makes me need to validate that side of it. But one of the other things that this gives you is you have a lot of log data coming in, especially using um, Elasticsearch as a, time, as a log aggregation platform. And any field that comes in that has data you can mine, any field that comes in as an int or a number field or a GOIP or however it is, you can then apply time series math to it efficiently and quickly. And that becomes extraordinarily powerful if you're doing things like I'm looking for all of my HTTP status codes and I want to do some operations based on latency and time in pipeline. And suddenly you can start building some very complex um, visual models out of this data. And I tell my clients that it's a best practice that if you're emitting a metric point, you should also be logging at that point as well. Mm -hmm. And with Elasticsearch, you get both for the price of a single log message. Exactly. So if you can afford the Elasticsearch overhead for, for running, folks consider Elasticsearch scale when you get to have been scaled when you get into the billions of, of data points, sorry, billions of documents. And billions of data points is not anything serious in terms of Graphite or Prometheus, but the power comes into this when you have this isn't a summary of an, or this, this isn't metadata about event, an event. This is the actual event. This is the log record itself that you're taking and, and slicing and dicing. So you're not doing abstract aggregations on summaries of data or portions of data. You're actually, you actually have all the data. Which is incredibly powerful for dealing with quantiles, which yeah. a lot of people, a lot of people do to measure the SLA of their services. Mm-hmm. And if you're already recording that data in your Apache log or in whatever log you're running, well, you can for free, effectively, start pulling out your, your, your the other metrics that you need that you would often turn to a time, turn to a time series database for. Another yeah. piece of this, this puzzle is the way Elasticsearch lets you shard data, either by day or by type or by however you want to do it, which makes expiring older data selectively very easy. So you can say, oh, I want to keep my HAProxy time series data for X amount of time, but my application logs I only need for a week or however long it is. So you can have selective roll-off times for various pieces of this. That's um, a pretty key design point, and that's a big feature of the new Prometheus database that will 
debut in Prometheus 2.0, the database Ooh. is is a sex a series of blocks, and each block is a miniature database. So you have one block for three or four days, maybe. So if you want to roll off data, it's an RM basically. There is no more having to rewrite the entire time series file. That's quite handy. Um, yeah, that saves a lot of I/O. The other thing that um, a lot search gives you is if you needed to expand your cluster, you just add more nodes and your shards will start moving around. And presto, you now have more search capacity, more disk I.O. capacity, more CPU, more network interface, all those kinds of things for reasonable values of adding more. You, in my experience, the hard limit, or not the hard limit, but the soft limit for the cluster sizes is about 100 nodes. Past that, you're, you're going you're to start paying for it in terms of overhead for network and other other pieces. You have some interesting uh, TCP networking uh, efficiencies. Yeah, efficiencies bottlenecks with yeah, the, a set amount of TCP sockets that have to be open to each machine. Yeah, the Elasticsearch model is it's a full mesh network, so every node opens thirteen TCP connections to every other node in the cluster. Further, okay, painless and thirteen connections. I, there's a <laughs> yeah. So the other piece of the the Elasticsearch node limitation is the cluster metadata state has to be acknowledged by all the other member nodes of the cluster when things change. So when there's a mapping update, for example, or when a cluster, when a node enters or leaves the cluster or a new index is created or a bunch of other things happen, every node in the cluster has to acknowledge that action within 30 seconds. And if it doesn't, it gets kicked out of the cluster. Well, it, there's a couple of retries, but it, it eventually we get kicked out of the cluster. And then the cluster's going to rebalance and try to do this again. And if things are, are having problems because of load, you're going to start kicking out multiple nodes of the cluster, then that will go badly for you very quickly. So keeping your cluster size, keeping an eye on your cluster size is extraordinarily important with Elasticsearch as you get to a larger cluster size. Most people don't run clusters of 100 nodes. Most people run clusters of 5 to 10 nodes, and they're never going to run into the, to that specific limitation, but it's something to be aware of as you're trying to think about scale and what you're doing with all of this. So getting back to document size, mm -hmm. you're saying that a document is the log entry that you extract multiple metrics from, not a specific data point in a time series, correct? So it depends on how your data model is. You can have you could send a document that had a single field and a, sing a single key and a single value and call that one document as one data point. Because that time would be an awful lot of documents. Yes, it would. And you're going to pay through the nose for heap space because you need to have a little bit of heap for every document in every shard of every index and all kinds of other things. But you also can say, here's a document that has an array of points in it, or it has a bunch of different fields and different values. So you have a one document per time slice for a tier of servers. You can do all kinds of things with this. You, you can slice this and dice this in lots of different ways. Um, it's a so as long as you chunk your data reasonably, you build reasonable documents that can uh, scale and be indexed properly. Yeah, and Elasticsearch's in, um, indexing limitation suggests very strongly that you not have more than a thousand fields, unique fields in an index. So don't do cardinality, say like host names um, or IP addresses as as your field <laughs> name because that's that's going to that's going to blow you up pretty quickly. Um, but even with high cardinality, Elasticsearch can do a lot of really interesting things with with ag aggregation and tagging. So. It, it gives you a lot of flexibility that you don't have in other tools because it was built as a search engine originally. So unlike Graphite, which has no effective search 
It has basically, you, you have to know what you're asking it for. Um, Prometheus, which has a fair amount, but has its own interesting quirks about labels and tagging and dimensionality and cardinality. Um, I know InfluxDB has had limitations in the past about the number of tags and keywords you can apply to things, but I've not looked at that recently. So, And OpenTSDB had some strange limitations there, but I think those are all of the past now. Okay. Um, the other thing that you get out of Elasticsearch for a time series database is, and as much as this in a way pays me to say, is you get Logstash out of it. Um, Logstash is an extraordinarily useful tool for slicing and dicing and manipulating um, incoming data. I'm currently using it for, obviously, logs, but I'm also using it for a bunch of other uses. We have a an index that contains all of the backups, all the backup objects in, X, in S3. And there's tens of millions of these objects. So instead of trying to have a developer or an end user or somebody in legal go and dump the object list from S3, which you just, takes a long time. It takes hours. If, if you're not already in AC2, it takes literally hours to, to dump all the objects because it's such a large space. So you dump it once, you stick it into, into Elasticsearch, and you can use Logstash to do all kinds of slicing and dicing on the stream. You can do regular session parsing. You can update stuff. You can do you can reinsert as an update instead of as a new document. There's all kinds of magic you can do with it. And then you have this nice cooked index waiting for people to pick up. And the better part of it is you don't need to be a developer to be able to understand the config language that operates um, Logstash. So you can do a lot of really interesting things with it without having to get deep into the code, without having, like, ha- without having to really understand Java or Ruby or JRuby. Is this the Grok language? Well, there's Grok and there's, there's all kinds of other pieces of Logstash. So there's a bunch of, bunch of parts of it. So you can do regular expressions and you can do all kinds of other manipulations to the data. And it has fairly robust Kafka library support, which is the other part of this that makes makes it so interesting to me. Um, <laughs> one yes, of the, it's nice when you have a lossless bus that runs anywhere. Yeah, and it's fairly well supported. And if people want to start doing Spark streaming off of it or other other streaming data manipulations, you can easily hook that to a Kafka pipeline because it's relatively inexpensive for Kafka to handle that. But it also gives you... the Replay replayability of your metric data, which you don't get in almost any other format, especially things like um, the simple D. ability to stop your metric flow, do maintenance on your servers, and reingest and not lose anything is is beyond powerful. Oh yes, you you do need, of course, to pay the cost of running another cluster because you're, you're a zookeeper, and you need to have storage space to hold that buffer for however long it is you're going to hold it. Yeah. But it's relatively inexpensive because you can run it on SATA disks, you know, just spinning Rust. And it works extraordinarily well. So I highly recommend Kafka in, in general, um, but especially for the feed of data into Elasticsearch. It is, it is wonderful. And trying to the dunk... The folks at Sarconis have uh, a bus that they call FQ. Um, I'm not really sure I wish to repeat in a public channel what FQ means, but it's a similar bus that's written in C that's very limited in what it can do. But I've looked at using that for transport of metrics as each data point is its own document. You get to lots of, of data points really fast. Oh, yeah. And that is amazingly efficient on steroids uh, tool to transport metric data back and forth. 
but again, that's that's part of my own little experiments. Yeah, and if you have trouble with the language of FQ, um, Bitly has NSQ. It's another operationally simple, directly implemented kind of thing. Um, I'm not sure what language they run it in. Directly implemented bus, yeah. Yeah, but it's, again, it's a simple thing, much like FQ, where if you don't need the overhead of a cluster, if you just want a bus for PubSub, it might be a good option to look into. And again, I'm sure that Logstash has probably a plugin for NSQ and everything else in the world. Everything else in the world at this point. Because that's what... Logstash does. Logstash has was was positioned before Elastic partnered up with them to be the be all end all log processing management data flow tool. And it's not always been the most efficient and it's not always been the most bug free, but it has a very large user base. It has a very rich plugin ecosystem and it's fairly well understood. So But again, I think of Logstash and I immediately think of the processing of textual based information of textual based events yeah and in my world of metrics i'm looking for an application that dumps out some string keys and data points yes but also logstash can do things like take your textual based events extract all the metrics from them and then emit those as other messages inside the same bus or off to another system i've definitely seen it do some stats admitting which is awfully handy Mm mm-hmm so if you want to do rates and message counts of things, or if you wanted to pull your Apache status codes out, or you wanted to pull timestamps or byte sizes or other things, you can pull those out of your textual log messages, put them in fields that either Elasticsearch can use as a time series database, or you can shove them off into other other pieces of your, of your architecture. Um, circling back for a moment to the Kafka part of it, one of the, the amazing benefits of all of this is you don't have to have a socket open to Graphite or a socket open to StatsD or be available for a scrape to Prometheus. As long as you have the data and you know what the timestamp was, you can dump it onto the Kafka bus at any point and it will get pushed through the system. So if a, if a server is has the, the network interface is down for 20 minutes, but it's still working on something, Prometheus has no visibility into what happened with it. Graphite is possibly useful, but probably not, and StatsD is useless. A Kafka-based or a a message queue-based statistics delivery platform or TSDB delivery platform at this point just says, okay, well, you're back on the network now. Give me your logs or give me your data again. And you just dump it onto the queue and it's back back in business. Yeah, I think that's an important point to be aware of. Prometheus is a real-time system in some definition. It monitors things that happen in real time. If the server that it's scraping doesn't respond in real time with real-time data, the data in Prometheus is either not there or useless. And Logstash has the ability to process data near real time and take care of the backlog when such exists. Exactly. It's generate the metrics that were supposed to be generated at that time, shove them into a bus and get them processed and inserted into your TSDB at the right point in time, which is mm-hmm. not really something that you can do with Prometheus. Yeah, and one of the few things that, that allows you to do out-of-order data in, data insertions is Graphite, and I love it for that. And actually, I like Graphite for all kinds of reasons, um, partly because the data model is simple, so it's easy to Graphite's understand. Graphite's so operationally simple, it's easy for everyone to understand. The 
one of the biggest issues that I have working with Prometheus is not the technology itself, but how do you get other people throughout the company that need to deal with metrics to understand the technology? Furthermore, when you're looking at a tool like Grafana, you know, or even just the elastic, the graphite web composer, the graphite ecosystem has an extraordinary number of helper functions that let you slice and dice and analyze your data and do all kinds of forecasting on it and all kinds of other smoothing over and when missing, do this in some series. I want the maximum thing of this. And Prometheus's helper library is nowhere near as feature rich as Graphite at this point. Its query language is much more powerful than Graphite's will ever be. But the number of functions that it has is fairly limited. Yes. And Graphite has a entire slew of uh, functions. And especially since Graphite is aimed at at manipulating long-term data, where Prometheus is only interested in near real-time, you know, sort of max 30 days out uh, data manipulations. Mm-hmm. And I see Elasticsearch fitting in between the two of them. You can do... You can't do as much as you can do with Prometheus in terms of the, just the, the hardcore math with Elasticsearch, but you can do a lot more than you can get out of Graphite by leaps and bounds. And with the painless scripting language, you can put your own helper functions in relatively easily. And the language is the, the painless language, the groovy language is not a difficult one to understand. So it makes it the painless language is painless to understand. Eh, I mean, it, it's still a scripting language. So you have to, clear that bar of learning another syntax of another thing. If you already know Groovy, hey, you're you're halfway there. Um, or 95% of the way there. But it gives you the flexibility to add things in situ to your running yeah. system without having to go, oh, I need to go patch this thing and, and fork the branch and all the other... No, it's just... not something you have really in Prometheus. It's easier to add functions to Graphite. And some of the uh, Graphite forks make it even easier but you're still doing some uh, Python code and, and updating web server code. Yeah. And with the Elasticsearch, you run it during the query time. So you, you're running it operationally while the system's running live. You don't have to stop anything. You don't have to update anything on the server side. It's just it's in the client side query. So Here's my script. Go. Yeah. And again, the painless stuff has been built from the beginning to be safe for security and safe in terms of memory and CPU usage. So it won't blow your stack out or, you know, other horrible things with your heap, it'll, it, it's going to contain itself or it's going to try as hard as it can to contain itself. And if it doesn't, that's a bug and they're going to fix it because that's, that's a really high priority for them. And that's a bug that, that we fought with, with Elasticsearch for a while is dealing with queries that overwhelm the cluster. Actually, one of the other things in 5.3 that I was just testing a couple of days ago is the task management API in Elasticsearch now has the ability to cancel in-flight queries, which in the past it couldn't do, which takes out a huge chunk of the hacky workarounds that I put into the 2.2 releases um, for Kibana that prevent leading wildcards, among other things, because we can just say at, at, at runtime, no, just kill all, all searches that are currently in flight, just kill them all right now. And it's just going to go and shut them all down. So it, it solves a huge chunk of those operational problems that we had. Now the trick, of course, is upgrading to it. But, you know, that's life. Details. So, yeah, that's that's kind of the the summary of where the space is going from on the Elasticsearch side. I'm really interested to see 
how they handle it and move forward. One of the things they still have to crack is the on-disk space efficiency. Right now, um, Graphite and Prometheus handily beat Elasticsearch for the amount of disk space required to handle the time series data points. Because again, Lucene was built as a general purpose search engine and it can do some really amazing things with numeric data. It still isn't a purpose built. Um, what was that paper, Jackie, you keep on talking about? The gorilla paper? They had some crazy byte efficiency stuff going on. Yeah, so the the Facebook gorilla paper um, and the Prometheus folks read that paper and added some storage encoding features to their current database. And they achieved the same compression ratios of I believe 1.5 bytes per sample. So that's a timestamp and a value in compressed into, on average, 1.5 bytes. Yeah, that's just ridiculous. Which is ridiculous. Whisper uh, stores, is not natively compressed. It stores each timestamp and value in 12 bytes. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a 32-bit timestamp and an 8-byte float. Some of the experiments that I've done or I've looked at um, involve keeping real data and storing that in, in a couple of 8-byte variables on disk and then summarizing that to minutely values and figuring out what size of that specific summary is. So for some of the experiments I'm looking at, I may have done 32 bytes per data point when, I, when it all is ended up said and done with. Mm-hmm. Which is not horrible. Could be better. Um, Whisper responds really well if you have, say, a ZFS file system set to uh, LZ4 compression. (laughs) And I imagine that other uh, time series databases in a column or store uh, would respond equally as well. The Gorilla paper is all about the fact that the Float data that you store from one timestamp to the next usually doesn't change by a whole lot. And so you store the differences in the, of the change rather than the entire value. And do that with a variable bit encoding, and that gets small. The differences in the change, not the differences in the value. Correct. Ooh. That's clever. That's really clever. Yeah, that's, that's some handy code. Yeah, and Lucene from what I understand of it, we'll never be able to do that that particular kind of encoding trick because it has to handle so many different kinds of data. That it's, it's not just trying to store floats. It's trying to store all kinds of stuff. But then again, it gives you other kinds of flexibility on the other side. It's elastic in that sense. It's elastic. And using LZ4 compression or GZIP compression for a column or time series database is a very generic compression that'll give you a lot of headroom uh, but will will not compare to what a specific compression for storing a series of floats that don't usually vary that much between each other. Mm-hmm. So they're def they're definitely different levels of tools that you can you can target that on disk footprint problem with. You know, there's a place that we could go to talk about this for hours on end and never get bored. Monitorama. Are you going? There is. And I am going to Monitorama. My first time, in fact. Conveniently, I'm going. This is my second visit. 
Well, perhaps we can have lots of beer together and speak of the glories that ZFS can apply to ordinary everyday problems. You know, I would like to find Brian Brazil and buy him a beer as well. He's done some amazing stuff. And I have some questions about some of the decisions that th- th- their team has made on on the trade-offs operationally of how Prometheus handles things. But also the lead author of Graphite is there. He, it's actually his conference. And there's a bunch of it's other folks. It's his conference. Jason Dixon is, is yeah. in charge of the matter. Um, so th- there's a lot of people who care a lot about this kind of st- the stuff that we talk about frequently who will be there. And if you're there, find us. We'll be around. Oh, and yes. I look forward to the conference. That wraps it up for the 33rd episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. We are Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. Thanks and good night. Please take the time to rate the show on iTunes. It's the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows we've recorded or topics you would like us to cover. Leave a comment at the website, operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. Or use Operations FM on Twitter.